Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. On the far southwest edge of West Virginia, bordering Kentucky along the Tug River, is Mingo County. And on the eastern border of Mingo County, just a little further into West Virginia, is Logan County. Sleepy little localities in the Appalachian Mountain region, where the only thing rich is their history. Logan was the site of something called the Battle of Blair Mountain. If you've never heard of this, you're not alone. Most people have never heard of it. But I was surprised to read that it's considered the largest labor uprising in U.S. history, and it was the largest armed uprising since the U.S. Civil War. In 1921, 10,000 armed coal miners confronted 3,000 lawmen who were working with private strike-breaking security forces known as the Logan Defenders. These forces, along with law enforcement, were defending coal mine operators who were killing and intimidating miners for trying to unionize for safer working conditions and better pay. A million rounds were fired, and the U.S. Army, represented by the West Virginia Army National Guard, also stepped in to oppose the workers. Apparently, in the Appalachians, where coal mining was a big thing, there was a series of violent labor disputes in the early 1900s. About a hundred people were killed and many more arrested in something called the Coal Wars. They actually started in the 1890s and went through until 1930. Most of the literal fighting took place in the eastern U.S. with a little bit in Colorado as well at the turn of the century. This was an extremely violent situation. People weren't playing here. The coal companies were running company towns, which were labor camps controlled by the companies. They were policed to keep out union representatives and to make sure the workers didn't get up to any shenanigans to try and improve their working conditions or their pay. The coal companies employed thugs who were professional strike breakers. In one shocking incident, the Battle of Everts, these private security forces literally machine-gunned down workers and their families, including their children. And they repeated this later in Colorado during something called the Ludlow Massacre. I don't want to get too derailed here, but I have to talk a little about this Ludlow Massacre because, wow. It was a massacre perpetrated by anti-strike militia during the Colorado Coalfield War. Soldiers from the Colorado National Guard, along with private guards employed by Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, attacked a tent colony of about 1,200 striking miners and their families in Ludlow, Colorado in 1914. Men, women, and children were murdered. And John D. Rockefeller Jr., part owner of CF&I, had recently spoken at a U.S. congressional hearing on the subject of strikes. He was generally seen as the person responsible for this massacre. But let's get back to Logan County, West Virginia. Union and labor organizing were difficult there for a lot of reasons, the least of which 
was that the sheriff, Don Chafin, was very much anti-union and on the side of coal companies. So the union organizers turned their sights on neighboring Mingo County, which sits right on the western border of West Virginia, butting up against Kentucky. The power structure there was more pro-union and independent. Some of the folks appointed to positions of authority there were themselves former miners that were sympathetic to the plight of the workers. And the unions started to expand and do well in that area. But the better they did, the harder the coal company hammers fell. They fired anyone who was union-friendly and then blacklisted them to ensure that they couldn't find work elsewhere. Once they were out of a job, they were quickly evicted from their homes since these were company towns. A company town is a village where the workers are housed near the work site. In this case, those workers were often paid in company scrip, and their pay was docked for things like housing, medical care, and even the tools that they used in the mine. These company towns also generally included company stores where the scrip was good. It generally wasn't good anywhere but these company stores, so Everything you earned went right back to your company, right back to your employer, and you had no way to accumulate wealth and leave. So losing your job meant losing everything, and one of the company lawyers put it like this, quote, It's like a servant lives at your house. If the servant leaves your employment, if you discharge him, you ask him to get out of the servant's quarters. It's a question of master and servant, unquote. Except in this case, your servant has to leave without any possibility of accumulating wealth. All they have is scrip. So a group called the United Mine Workers set up tent colonies for the now unhoused miners and their families. And as the tent city grew fuller and fuller of disgruntled workers concentrated in a small area along this Tug Fork River, it eventually resulted in 3,000 of the 4,000 Mingo County miners signing up with the union. At one company, Stone Mountain Coal Company, every single worker signed up, and every single one of them was summarily fired and evicted. So there were a lot of good reasons to sign up with the union, and only bad reasons not to. And these companies were not interested in using a carrot. They were 100% committed to the stick. So their incentives to not join the unions included things like don't join a union or we'll leave you unhoused, starving, and destitute, or maybe kill you and your family. In the town of Matwan, also in Mingo County, similar things were happening. And after one woman and her children were evicted, their belongings tossed out into the street, in the rain, by the company's Baldwin Feltz agents at gunpoint. I mean, really could this story be any worse? Some of the miners sent word to authorities in a nearby town where Sid Hatfield served as police chief. Hatfield was one of the former union workers who now held a position of authority and was sympathetic to the workers. The long and short of it was that there was a showdown between Hatfield and some of his deputized miners and these Baldwin Feltz agents who were not prepared to recognize any authority but that of the coal companies that paid their salaries. And at the end of it, ten men were dead 
three from the mining town, and seven from the agency, including two Feltz brothers represented in that Baldwin Feltz agency name. Police Chief Hatfield was still standing. This became known as the Matwan Massacre and was featured in the film Matwan in 1987. The event was inspirational to the miners to see that. Hatfield became an icon and a symbol of hope that it was possible to fight back and win. Of course, later, Hatfield was assassinated in broad daylight on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse by other Baldwin Feltz agents. And then the miners, knowing there would be no system justice for this act, began organizing armed patrols of their own communities and standing head-to-head with law enforcement sent into their communities. The Army and the National Guard were called out to help fight against the miners, to basically serve the coal companies and work with the private security teams against these workers and citizens who were only seeking better working conditions and pay. When federal troops arrived, many of the miners wouldn't fight them, being veterans themselves. 985 miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. During the trial of Bill Blizzard, who served in an unofficial leadership role, his defense included producing an unexploded bomb, one of many that had been dropped from air forces against the miners during the fighting, some filled with gas left over from World War I. It served as evidence of the government and company brutality against these miners, and it resulted in his acquittal. But this goes on and on. For every story I could read you, there are half a dozen links to more. It's actually kind of unbelievable. I knew the minor strikes were brutal and violent, but honestly, I don't think I really grasped the scale of the violence and the length of it. The sheer timeline of all of this, it's just horrifying. After I scripted this episode, I wanted to come back to add something here. This story, the history of these mining towns, isn't even the story I'm trying to tell. It's just a history to add some context to what's coming. I actually sat down to talk about something totally unrelated to these Appalachian mining labor disputes. So as I started to record this history for this episode, a lot of this was news to me. And once I finished the script, literally, when I closed my laptop, I had to step away from this story in order to process this information to actually come to terms with what I was learning here. U.S. federal troops, the West Virginia National Guard, and law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions all showed up to support the coal companies who were horribly exploiting their workers and using hired thugs to intimidate and murder them and their families. And these miners, their only transgression was asking for safer working conditions and better pay terms. In order to unionize, they had to fight every entity that this country has organized to protect and defend citizens at every level, from local to state to federal. With some noteworthy exceptions, 
local law enforcement, the state, and the nation was ready to gun down citizens to support and perpetuate corporate exploitation that included outright murder of their own workers. And the citizens employed by local law enforcement, the state, and the nation were willing to participate in killing these workers in order to maintain the status quo of egregious working conditions and exploitation of labor. Maybe it's just me? But that's a heavy thing to process about the reality of what my country represents and supports. It was President Warren G. Harding who agreed to deploy federal resources to the situation at Blair Mountain. Harding's policy positions were very much American exceptionalism combined with pro-business, and he was elected on those platforms by a landslide in the Electoral College, 404 to 127. He ran on opposition to his predecessor's more progressive policies. He opposed U.S. cooperation with other nations in the form of the League of Nations. He was scared it would undermine U.S. sovereignty. He was opposed to efforts to promote marketplace competition and regulate business. He was suspicious of organized labor and believed that the government should support business as much as possible, which helps explain why he was willing to send federal troops in to help hired guns murder minors trying to affect workplace improvements. To be transparent, Harding did actually intervene in some business disputes and did oppose things like the 12-hour workday seven days a week that steel workers were forced to put in, but his priority was keeping businesses running. Harding's predecessor, Wilson, used the War Labor Board to intervene in the coal industry specifically. He helped set standards for wages, working hours, and working conditions, and he also did this for other industries in an effort to help avoid strikes. He was willing to meet with companies and labor to help broker agreements, including a 14% pay increase and a reduction in the 10-hour workday to 8 hours for the coal miners. Another interesting fact about Wilson is that he also sent in federal troops during a coal labor dispute in Colorado, that Ludlow massacre mentioned earlier. In trying to determine the role of these troops, I found an entry at Britannica where it's clear they thought it was important to note that, quote, unlike the National Guard, the federal troops were impartial and kept strikebreakers out of the coal mines, unquote. This was a marked difference from their role in the West Virginia dispute at Blair Mountain when the troops were sent in to support the law enforcement against the miners. President Harding died while in office of a heart attack, but his successor to the office was Calvin Coolidge, who ran for the next term and won again by a landslide. So a lot of the nation apparently supported these pro-business positions. In fact, Coolidge decided not to run again after his term was up, and the next president was Herbert Hoover, whose laissez-faire economic policies, tariff wars, failure to regulate banks, and support for the gold standard in currency helped to usher in the Great Depression. Hoover's run as president was famous for Hoovervilles, shanty towns that sprang up across the U.S. where unhoused citizens lived in boxes and scrap houses on vacant land and public spaces. 
They were overcrowded, unsanitary, and lacked basic amenities like running water and electricity. In other words, they were a lot like the tent camps we're seeing more and more of today. Weirdly, this issue of housing insecurity will actually tie into another part of the story later. After Hoover, the U.S. had had enough, and that's when Roosevelt was elected in 1932. He battled the Great Depression with the New Deal, which I've talked about in other episodes, such as the one on the Civilian Conservation Corps. Roosevelt implemented a number of policies intended to help people in desperate situations, and a lot of his programs would be opposed today by conservatives who remain the ideological heirs of presidents like Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. A lot of the horror from the Great Depression, which hit the Appalachians hard, helped to inform Roosevelt's New Deal in 1933. It evolved into unions for steel workers and the formation of groups like the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations. You may recognize them better under their combined acronyms of the AFL-CIO. Today, the county of Mingo still has low population and high poverty, but it saw some improvements in social health metrics from the 2000 to the 2010 census. Interestingly, however, sometime after that, this county that had been staunchly democratic broke that connection to reject liberal social policies and is now solidly Republican conservative, even voting against Democrat in name only Joe Manchin in his last election, in spite of his retaining broader support statewide. But the story I'm going to tell isn't about Mingo County at the turn of the century. And it's not about Mingo County today. It's about Mingo County somewhere in the middle. Not even really Mingo County, but a town within Mingo called Vulcan. Vulcan is such a blip on the map that if you blinked, you'd miss it. It's an unincorporated community that is a stone's throw from the Kentucky-West Virginia border, which is marked by the Tug River. Outside of the river, Vulcan is surrounded by nothing but forested mountains. In fact, I should probably stop here to say that for all the negative stereotypes associated with the Appalachian region, it is surrounded by natural beauty. Still, I can't stress enough how insignificant this town of Vulcan is by any sort of outsider metric. If you Google it on Google Maps... You get the red pin, but not a single photo or review or point of interest comes up. If you try and put your little map person down in the handful of streets that I guess are Vulcan, the closest you get is a Kentucky highway that runs along the border, KY-194. Even the Google Maps truck skipped this town. But what you can see from Google Maps is the bridge that leaves off of KY-194 and crosses the Tug River and a set of railroad tracks into West Virginia to get you to Vulcan. This bridge is called the Vulcan Bridge, and it connects you to Tug River Road, which is also known as Vulcan Road. But no, this is not some weird town full of heavy-duty Star Trek fanatics. It's actually named after Vulcan, the Roman god of the forge which also seems a little strange for a nothing town in West Virginia. 
But the reason for that name was that Vulcan was one of those coal mining towns we were just talking about. Vulcan Mining Company incorporated at the end of 1949 and dissolved in the middle of 1951, so not a very long or illustrious run, but the town continued mining, I assume with other companies stepping in, until 1968 when the coal supply finally ran out. This resulted, as you would expect, in a big drop in their population as workers left to pursue other employment elsewhere. There really just wasn't much else going on in Vulcan, West Virginia, outside of the mining. So when you pull up the satellite view and you put your guy on the road looking across that Vulcan bridge, it doesn't really look like much, just a regular paved bridge crossing a relatively small river onto another paved road surrounded by woods. But back in the 1970s, that bridge wasn't quite the same as it appears today. In the early 20th century, a Kentucky coal company built a wooden footbridge across the Tug River into Vulcan, so the miners who lived there could walk, rather than row, to work. Some decades later, with a lot of wear and tear, that rickety bridge was pretty well still all that connected the people living in Vulcan to the infrastructure on the other side of that river. It certainly wasn't anything you could drive a car across. It was a footbridge, a swinging wooden pedestrian bridge. But the children of Vulcan had to cross it to reach their school bus on the Kentucky side of the river. An archived New York Times article described how people were dragged under idled railroad cars to get them to the local cemetery using railroad property to try and get across. The railroad cars belong to the Norfolk and Western Railway that runs through the middle of town. But this bridge was not built on railroad property, which is private property that people are not supposed to be using. The bridge was publicly accessible and built on public land, and modest as it was, it was the only close publicly accessible way to walk in or out of the town to facilities and amenities in the nearby towns across the river in Kentucky. At one point, the people of Vulcan, who did their best to keep the bridge repaired, had expanded it to make it drivable, but only barely wide enough to be drivable. Still, in the mid-1970s, their connection to the outside world, their town bridge, collapsed and it was carried off by the Tug River, leaving the people of Vulcan well and truly fucked. So they did what any small town would do if you were facing an infrastructure crisis. They reached out to the state of West Virginia to let them know what happened and to ask for assistance, which was denied because there was a lack of traffic, which one would expect in a tiny town. But being without this bridge was no small matter for the folks who lived there because there was no longer a bridge across the river into the neighboring Kentucky towns. The people of Vulcan started to use an alternative route along the railway property that I had mentioned earlier, which was both illegal and dangerous. And when the townsfolk explained their citizens, especially their children, were being put at risk, they were still denied. The government of West Virginia did not care and was not interested. So in the 1970s, 
It was kind of just like it had been around the turn of the century where people with wealth and power and authority just did not care what people without power were dealing with. Dangerous working conditions, dangerous infrastructure. It was no different in 1975 than it was in 1914. And when you fight back, you all just get rounded up and sent to prison. So what's an impoverished town to do? The children of Vulcan were crawling under parked railroad cars at the railroad's bridge to get to school. One child lost a leg doing that. Some motorists tried to use railway property to get over the river, but the path was so narrow that some of them ended up with their cars in the river. Eventually, the railroad started prosecuting anyone caught on the property. I imagine they were concerned about liability. A full two years after the bridge had fallen, and the people were still struggling to reach amenities outside their town, a local man named John Robinette decided to do something about it. I tried to find information on Robinette, but it's not easy. One article said he was a bartender who lived in a trailer. Some articles called him the mayor of Vulcan. Some articles called him the self-appointed mayor of Vulcan. The New York Times described him as a sort of of jack-of-all-trades who lived a drifter life. The best I can do is say that he appears to have been a man with a fire in his belly to get this bridge fixed, and in some capacity it seems pretty likely that a lot of the other residents had his back on this. He was as determined as he was desperate. There was literally no legal way for anyone in this town to get in or out without breaking laws and his state was content to ignore what they were dealing with. The consistent response he got was that there just wasn't any money to fix a bridge that only impacted a few hundred people, maybe 50 families, living in this town. One article said that his impetus to get this done was seeing an elderly woman in the community refuse delivery for furniture she'd ordered, because the delivery driver refused to drive along the railroad access gravel stretch, citing safety concerns. This was the same stretch people had fallen off of into the river with their cars. So John Robinette started a one-man letter-writing campaign, not writing to the local or state authorities who had repeatedly refused him, but going over their heads. No, not to the White House either. Robinette decided that if his own government wouldn't help him, he would ask someone else's government. From 1947 to 1991 was a period in history called the Cold War years. It was a period of marked political tension between the U.S. and Russia that dragged in a lot of the rest of the globe. Growing up in those years, we saw a lot of media reflecting the fears of nuclear war, growing nuclear arsenals, lots of political paranoia and propaganda from every side. Much flexing of military muscle, lots of threat and blustering. Kids taught in school to duck and cover because hiding under your desk is the safest place to be in the event of a nuclear blast. I grew up watching Boris and Natasha being thwarted by Bullwinkle and Rocky. I remember the film War Games. 
It was during this time that there was a huge surge in theories around telekinesis and psychic abilities, the U.S. and Russia literally dropping funding to study whether human beings could astral project themselves onto battlefields to spy on enemy movements. I remember watching a kid from China who could, we were told, impose images on film using only his mind. It gave us the completely awful McCarthy hearings with lives destroyed over allegations of ties to the Communist Party. I've talked some before about the violent impact on marginalized communities and advocacy efforts. It was, on the U.S. side, the Communist Scare, the Red Scare, a time of breeding citizen fears and promoting a patriotic nationalist frenzy around U.S. values of democracy and freedom. And as hard as we worked to make the Russians and their supporters look bad, they were busy doing the same to the U.S. This was definitely not a one-way street. Whatever we could do to paint the other in a bad light, that's what we were going to do, with a lot of secrecy and dishonesty and bad faith tools and techniques. Before I dive into the next section, then, I need to lay out some caveats. In the volunteer work I used to do, we had a saying, If you don't want to be ridiculed, then don't do or say ridiculous things. Sometimes propaganda can come in the form of outright lies and half-truths. But sometimes all you have to do is go fishing for something that looks bad until you find it. That is, just because Russia wants to make the U.S. look bad doesn't mean that their criticism is untrue. I can work at making someone else look bad simply by focusing on their weaknesses or the legitimately horrible things they do. And in the U.S., we very often are happy to supply ammunition for another country to point to things we're doing that don't make this country look particularly fantastic. That is, we often bring the ridicule and the criticism on ourselves. Rather than pretend it's not true, rather than try and hide it or shift the focus, we could, you know, fix our broken stuff and do better. Sometimes, someone attacking you and embarrassing you enough about your bad behavior can create a motivation to improve. I'm just saying that when countries like Russia or China point out our injustices and problems in our system, two things can both be true. They can be acting in an entirely self-serving way, and they can be providing us an opportunity to see where we're performing badly and provide us with an impetus to do better. And it's also true that in calling out the problems in the U.S., Russia and China can have problems of their own that also need attention and correction. Iona Andronov made a point of humiliating the United States during the Cold War. Born in 1934, he's still alive today at the age of 89. Depending on your perspective, he's a political commentator, an author, a journalist, or an anti-U.S. propaganda machine. C-SPAN lists him as a member of the Russian parliament, but it doesn't have much else to say about him. The news outlet The Independent calls him a war correspondent and vice chairman of Foreign Affairs Committee of the Supreme Soviet. A New York Times archive article mentions him visiting Kentucky 
in a March 1986 article. He was listed as 48 years old then and identified as a correspondent for the Moscow-based Literary Gazette. While he was there covering a story about the United Mine Workers' strike, he was assaulted by two men. Ironically, an FBI agent who was assigned to surveil him ended up rescuing him from the situation. But this is some idea of the life Andronov led as a younger man. In an old scanned document at the CIA's official site, he's included in a section labeled Soviet Propaganda Alert, dated April 1982. One section that made me chuckle a bit read as follows, quote, this special edition of the alert contains some of the more outrageous charges against the U.S. made by Soviet propagandists in the past few months. The term disinformation best describes this output, which is distinct from ordinary Soviet propaganda, unquote. Under the headline, Moscow Launches Disinformation Offensive Against University of Maryland Medical Research Center in Pakistan, the CIA reports that Andronov published a piece in the Literary Gazette entitled Incubator of Death, accusing the University of Maryland's Pakistan Medical Research Center in Lahore of hosting CIA-sponsored scientists conducting research there to create poisonous mosquitoes to use in bacteriological warfare. So based on some of the wacky things we actually did spend money researching, I'm not going to laugh too hard at weaponized military mosquitoes, but I also can't say that I've heard that one before, or at least I don't recall it. But in addition to the international intrigue, Andronov also wrote some pieces tied to actual injustice. For example, he covered a story that was made into a film called The Man from Fifth Avenue. It was, unsurprisingly, about a man living in New York City named Joe Maury. He didn't actually live on Fifth Avenue, but on the other side of Central Park. In the mid-1980s, Andronov was living in New York as a foreign correspondent for the Literary Gazette, which was the Soviet Union's largest weekly newspaper. In 1985, he was taking a walk, and he was handed a flyer by a woman on the street. The flyers were about Joe Mari, who had been living in the same building for 12 years, paying just $98 a month for a 54-square-foot room. But he was being evicted by his landlady so that she could repurpose this space as a sewing room. According to Andronov, the situation wasn't isolated, and the area was in the process of urban renewal, where a lot of folks were losing their housing and unable to afford the new and improved spaces that required a new and improved monthly rental fee. Andronov did a piece covering the situation and was then contacted by the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the KGB, telling him they wanted to meet Maury. Their idea was to highlight the problem of rampant housing insecurity in the United States. A quick Google search on the side for how many unhoused people in the U.S. in 1985, yields a blurb from Population Research and Policy Review by Richard Freeman and Brian Hall titled Permanent Homelessness in America. As luck would have it, it's a paper that used a 1985 survey of unhoused people in New York City. In the paper, they say that looking at 1983 to 1985 growth in the number of people who were unhoused or in shelters, 
they estimate the unhoused population was between 343,000 to 363,000 by 1985, which the authors assert is 23 to 30 percent larger than just a few years earlier in 1983. So it does appear that we had a surge in housing insecurity in the mid-80s and Andronov had hit a nerve that the Soviet Union wanted to exploit. Again, sometimes you can be made to look bad because you're doing things that look bad. Moscow sent a whole film crew to create a documentary about the housing problem here, especially in New York City. The documentary, or propaganda piece, depending on how you view it, ends with a statement that, on November 22, 1985, Joe Mari was evicted from his room near Fifth Avenue in New York. The Soviet Union used the documentary to slam the U.S. on an issue where we deserve to be slammed. And in response, voices like those of David Satter, author of Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, pointed out that there was also housing insecurity in the Soviet Union. Again, I'm not here to promote Russia or Putin or make judgments about where I'd rather live. I'm simply telling a story, and part of that story is how a Russian journalist was able to help the Soviet Union create a documentary that shed light on housing insecurity in the U.S., which was, and still is, a huge problem here. If we look bad, we did it to ourselves. If we want to do a documentary on housing problems in Russia, great, go for it. And then get on Spotify and talk about it all you want. In fact, in the interest of transparency, Slate ran an article about Joe Mari where they questioned some of the facts on the story. There is some question about whether he was unemployed or was working a low-level job in a mailroom. There was an unsubstantiated claim that he'd leased another room, but he said it was leased to his estranged wife. I'll be honest, these criticisms in the context of the Cold War where he was being shredded according to that same article in Slate for helping Russia with this piece sound as though they're looking for some way to discredit Mari so they can ignore the reality that he was actually being evicted and we actually were experiencing a pretty bad surge in housing insecurity. The Slate article also went into detail about a story about Mari's past that included several trips to Russia where he met a girl he liked. But that has nothing to do with his situation that was exploited by Moscow. In fact, in that same Slate article, it admits that Mari genuinely believed the U.S. hadn't done enough to deal with the crisis of housing insecurity. Mari also notes that while in Russia, he was told to say there was no unhoused population there, which he calls nonsense. Mari basically didn't have a problem leveraging his own eviction to get back to Russia. That doesn't mean he wasn't facing eviction. Both things can be true. Mari acknowledged that he'd given Russia what they wanted in his tour of the USSR, where he was giving speeches and treated like a star. But when he came back to the U.S. and he saw the headlines claiming that the whole documentary was a lie, he said it was just more propaganda from the U.S., his quote in Slate is actually, quote, They lied so much, it was unbelievable. They distorted so much. They ganged up on me. Everybody had to get on top of it because they were so brainwashed. Both sides were so brainwashed, unquote. Maury did get evicted. But thanks to a lot of people who fought for him, he was able to avoid becoming unhoused. He moved into a city-subsidized single-room occupancy hotel. 
It's interesting that the author of the Slate article considers that a win that one person avoided becoming unhoused because a lot of people fought to help him avoid it. I see it as problematic that we don't have a system in place to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone. That is, what about all the people who don't have a bunch of people to fight for them, who aren't picked up by Russian media and given a lot of attention? It shouldn't take individual citizen advocacy to stop someone from literally being unhoused. I heard someone say recently that we don't build houses to house people, we build them for profit. This is why we'd rather see millions of houses sit vacant than allow some of our hundreds of thousands of unhoused people to use them. I think the author of this Slate article is missing that point. So what can we take away from this? Propaganda is complicated. But having lived through the Cold War, which was pretty tense times, I don't believe for a second that Russia or China are going to take down the United States, at least not in my lifetime. But if U.S. citizens like Joe Mari can find a way to leverage U.S. humiliation and embarrassment to get what they need in life, then by all means I would encourage them to leverage the U.S. rivalry with Russia or China to get what they need. If the U.S. or a state authority can be embarrassed into providing basic needs to its citizens to avoid humiliation, go for it. We still have a massive housing crisis, so in this case we haven't actually fixed the problem that confronted us. Instead, we decided to attack the guy being evicted and write him off as a liar and a con man and then point at Russia to say they have unhoused people too. I guess that's a lot easier than solving for housing insecurity. But just like that statement about looking ridiculous, if the U.S. or a U.S. state doesn't want to look like they don't care about their citizens and doesn't want Russia or China to look good, then the U.S. and U.S. states can solve that problem unilaterally by actually serving citizens instead of ignoring their problems. When people kick up a fuss about China buying up farmland in the United States, if we're so concerned about who might buy private property here, maybe instead of restrictions on who can buy it, we could rethink private land ownership or buy it ourselves if we're so concerned that it stay in U.S. hands. If we're worried that Russia's going to come into the U.S. and help a town rebuild their infrastructure, then Stepping in to rebuild the infrastructure ourselves would solve that problem pretty handily. And at this point, you may be connecting some dots and starting to figure out where this is heading. Almost 10 years before the Joe Maury story, John Robinette in Vulcan, West Virginia, decided that if his own government wouldn't fix his town's bridge, he might as well start asking other governments. He appealed to the governments of East Germany and the Soviet Union. He sent two registered letters to Brezhnev, the then General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but he heard nothing back. Then, a writer for a Moscow weekly, the Literary Gazette, reached out to him. It was Iona Andronov. He'd heard about what was going on in Vulcan, and he wanted to come and see it for himself and interview Robinet. So on December 17, 1977, Andronov arrived and met Robinette to talk about the problem with the bridge. 
Within an hour of his arrival in Vulcan, the state of West Virginia announced to local media their plans for Vulcan's new bridge. The West Virginia legislature somehow found and approved $1.3 million in funding to replace the bridge, which opened in 1980. The 50 or so families in Vulcan believe it was because they'd finally gotten Russia's attention. The state, however, insists that it was just time for a new bridge, that these things take time, and the fact it was announced the same day Andronov came to get his scoop from Robinette was pure coincidence. Propaganda is complicated. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. 